Caution to listeners, the following podcast includes content of a graphic or distressing nature. Well, our shelter is located in Sydney. However, our catchment area is Cape Breton, Victoria counties. That is a huge landmass. So it is very difficult to reach the women in some of the more remote areas. Being a small town, everybody has their finger on the pulse of what everybody else is doing. So I think there's a lot of um, fear that people will know you're there or you go and, you know, the person working is your second cousin or like there's a lot of conflicts and overlaps or, you know, one, one of the reasons we do a phone assessment too is like abusive men aren't always the most loyal. Um, so what if, you know, we bring two women in and they happen to be with the same abusive partner and find out, like, there. Somebody Must Say These Things, a podcast made possible by the Transition House Association of Nova Scotia. Chapter 4 Nova Scotia is a province of 925,000 people as of 2016. There is only one large urban center, Halifax, where just over 300,000 Nova Scotians live. The rest of Nova Scotians live in and around small population centers, ranging from around 30,000 people to just over 1,000 people. Overwhelmingly, Nova Scotia is a rural province. Any situation where women and children who are the victims of violence are fleeing is immensely dangerous and difficult. But what if you lived hours away from the people who could help you, and you have no way of getting there? Or what if the tight-knit community that is supposed to support you is also watching your every move at a time when you desperately want to be invisible? In this episode, we are exploring violence against women in the rural context. Kentville itself, it's a small town. I don't know the number of people who live here. People mostly have to go out towards Colebrook, which is outside Kentville, to any mental health support or addiction support. Brenda Wood works at Chrysalis House in Kentville, Nova Scotia. And in her small town, basic support resources are often inaccessible without a car. Resources are still limited. It's, I think everybody kind of has to work together in order to try to even fill the gaps. Despite the fact that Nova Scotia is Canada's second smallest province, the vast distances Nova Scotian transition houses have to cover is a huge barrier for the women trying to access support. Helen Morrison of Willow House explains. You know, it's serving all of the, uh, all of the communities that encompass your, the area that you're in. And, you know, um, it's easy to get women to shelter and to programs uh, who are within our immediate sort of area of Sydney, even North Sydney, Glace Bay, uh, New Waterford. But even those, there's challenges because there are so many uh, transportation challenges for for us in rural areas, getting people to and from uh, these programs and uh, and meetings is really difficult. 
Cars are both essentials and luxuries when you live in a rural community. Not everyone can afford a car, and many women in abusive relationships don't have access to a car without their partner knowing. And in small, isolated communities, taxis, let alone public transit, are not always an affordable option. Dawn Ferris of Autumn House knows this issue all too well. One of the biggest challenges would be the lack of public transportation. Uh, if we get a call in the middle of the night from a woman who, who needs to flee, uh, but but can't even get a cab uh, or couldn't afford a cab and it would be quite pricey bringing somebody in from the farthest regions of Cumberland um, so those would be calls in the middle of the night to the ED to uh, approve the $120 taxi cab fee to get them in if there's an emergency that necessitates calling the RCMP they would bring the the woman in and her children of course but um so there's a lot of complexities to rural living that uh, I don't think are part of the uh, issues in the HRM or, or Sydney it, who have bus services that run, you know, you could uh, leave your house anywhere in HRM and, and get on a bus and make your way down to a shelter. Um, it's just not available up here. Furthermore, being in northern Nova Scotia, Dawn's house also has the challenge of supporting women across the New Brunswick border, further stretching the vast area they have to try to cover. As a border town, um, we actually have uh, women come to our shelter from New Brunswick. Even throughout COVID, um, we put the things in place that we needed to do. Uh, they self-isolated um, Sometimes we put them in the hotel. But uh, before COVID, the Mounties in Sackville, New Brunswick, would br bring women to our shelter because it was closer than Moncton. And so, um, you know, we see the odd uh, woman. And of, and, of course, moving across this country, there are women that pop up from all over the country. And transportation is just one major issue. Another is housing and the cost of living. Sure, the cost of buying a house in rural Nova Scotia is a fraction of what it costs to buying one in Toronto or Vancouver or even cities like Halifax. But there is an incredibly limited rental market, which drives up the price of housing women leaving transition houses need. Brenda explains. Housing is a very big issue right now. A lot of landlords have sold their housing and people have been evicted because someone else now is moving in. We basically are at zero housing availability and prices for rent have escalated dramatically. We were looking, because sometimes we do housing searches for them. And when we checked the other day, I think one of the apartments was over $2,000. Anyone on a low income budget cannot, uh, cannot even imagine it you know, accommodating that much money. So a rural area is a good place to live, but it's a challenging place to live because of distances and lack of resources. Even when properties become available, women escaping abuse are often flagged by landlords and excluded from the opportunity to rent. There's not a lot of uh, housing. The housing, uh, Cabo Good Housing Authority does a great job here, but there's just not enough houses to go around. And um, if somebody has had a rough go of things with an abusive partner and maybe on the rent landlords do not admit to list, um, then it's challenging helping a woman move out of shelter if, if she can't get a, a rental place on her own because her name has been blacklisted um, for her behaviors or from the ex's behavior. It's challenging in a small community where everybody knows everybody. 
Beyond the physical and fiscal difficulties of operating a transition house in a rural community, there are social challenges as well. When everybody knows everybody, it can mean outreach workers struggle to, as Helen describes it, break in. In some communities, there's also the difficulty of breaking in, getting, uh, you know, because sometimes there's a, there is a mistrust. And so trying to develop trust amongst people so that, uh, you know, they, they will respond when you reach out to them. The, the structure of the different communities and how they, you know, welcome or don't welcome, you know, people who they consider to be outsiders coming into their communities. More so than in urban centers, traditional family values also persist in a powerful, impactful way in many rural communities. Emily Stewart from Third Place in Truro explains. Beliefs about the family unit existing in rural areas um, that, you know, families should stay together no matter what, that, yeah, just a lot of pressure to maintain a family unit um, in rural areas and, um less supports available should they choose to leave. Like if, if we didn't have space, there were other organizations you could refer to. However, when you're in Turo and it's 2 a.m., there's no one else. So um, that's definitely more challenging. Breaking away from these social norms can be challenging and have social consequences. Emily has seen how the small, close-knit circles of rural communities can make women afraid of being ostracized for leaving an abusive partner and breaking up the family unit. Yeah, there's just so many degrees of overlap and connection. Because I had come from Bryony House, Halifax is just much bigger, and the chances of you knowing people that come through the door are much lower. But when I went to Truro, they were just like, oh, it's a really small town. Like, you'll see. And I was like, oh, well, I grew up in the valley. Like, I know I know small towns. But when you're dealing with a subset of a subset of a subset of a population in a small area, um, the points of overlap are quite intense. And the staff have to be really good at setting boundaries, um, making it clear if they know somebody and how or saying to the person when they come in, like, I know you've probably seen me at X, Y, and Z. I just want to let you know, like, I'll never share that with anyone that you've been here. Um, if you're not comfortable here, we'll come up with a plan to, to figure something else out. Transition houses work very hard to keep the identity of those in their shelters anonymous for their own security and peace of mind. Brenda has seen the struggles with confidentiality in small rural communities everybody knows everybody and people have a long memory about things that someone may have done in their youth and and so those things aren't forgotten and uh, that can create a wall that people can have a challenge just getting over it's also makes it harder as far as confidentiality uh, very much harder for us, and so we have to be really on top of that all the time because people do know each other, and they do talk, and there's always, whether in my groups or whether in-house, there's always a kind of a code that they must follow, and it's like what you hear or see here doesn't go beyond here because reputations can get ruined, and personal business can be found out, and the con that I learned growing up was that you're close-knit. Many of the people, many of us were all related together. 
but everybody wants to know everybody else's business. So that's challenging. So in rural communities, women's shelters and transition houses are faced with added physical, fiscal, and social issues and are not supported in a way that would make providing their essential services easier. Add to this mix the COVID-19 pandemic and you have a major crisis on your hands. Or so you would think. COVID affected service delivery in ways that are still hard to fully process. But it did force us to innovate especially in how we communicate. And this ended up having a benefit for THANs. It's much, much harder for those that live outside, which is what increased my workload during COVID because I'm now working across our whole catchment area because we can do that digitally through Zoom, but we, we couldn't do that before because they couldn't get transportation here. Connecting virtually with clients is, of course, not the same as doing it face-to-face. It's also not a perfect solution, as internet connections can be unreliable or non-existent for some, especially outside city centers. But connection is important, and while meeting virtually seemed like a last-ditch effort at first, it's paying off in the long term. We would like to do so much more in the areas that we have difficulty getting to. And you know, sometimes the difficulty in getting there is that we only have one outreach worker and she can only do so much. The other issue is just because of the landmass is the traveling to and from. And we have certain areas in the Victoria County in particular where you know some of those communities can be cut off in the winter because of the weather. So you know, it's really difficult to to get there and do the work. And so, you know, we are sort of um, since COVID and having to rely on uh, Zoom and other media to reach people because that's a big portion of the work that we do is just the the interaction, the the being there, the idea of having that human close to you that is understanding your story and not judging you. So, um, but sometimes, you know, if you can't, if you can't do that, then uh, maybe social media will, or, you know, the uh, Zoom and whatever may be the maybe the alternative. In the quaint, beautiful countryside of Nova Scotia, violence against women happens. The logistical and social issues victims face in these rural areas are often unseen by the wider public who are overwhelmingly moving to our nation's urban centers. To fix violence against women, we must understand its nuances. Violence is not just an urban problem. So why do people stay in these areas? Well, despite the struggles, rural life offers an unmatched sense of community. Outsiders are often embraced, and communities have embraced THANs. Well, I lived in Toronto for over 20 years, but I grew up in a rural area. So I know the pros and the cons. Um, the benefits of living in a, a community like this is that you do get known. And people are very friendly here and very welcoming on the most part. Um, so someone coming even from another area to here can usually integrate into the community quite well. 
the benefits are, yes, that we're a beacon for women and their children in, in the county. We're also very creative. Um, and in this county, I have found that this uh, community wraps their arms around Autumn House and the needs of women and children. Um, so if we have a need and put it out on our Facebook page, things show up in abundance. So um, I think because of the small nature of the rural community, it's also a compassionate community with, with a lot of free good spirit and goodwill towards us and our clients. So that's been amazing. In our next chapter, we will look to another Nova Scotian population often ignored, but have come to know violence against women all too intimately. They represent, uh, I want to say, 3% of the Canadian population, and yet 60-some percent of missing and murdered women are Indigenous. Like, that statistic doesn't even make sense. You can't comprehend. We will be looking at the systematic violence faced by Mi'kmaq women in our province. Remember that these are humans, you know, that have lived a life before this happened to them. And not knowing is what the families have said, that it's not knowing the answers is the most heart-wrenching part of it. You have been listening to Somebody Must Say These Things, a podcast made possible by the Transition House Association of Nova Scotia. FANS exists to eliminate violence against women in Nova Scotia. Their organizations provide a full range of support services to women and children in a safe, supportive environment and provide survivors of violence with opportunities to learn about available resources and alternatives to facilitate informed personal choices and decisions. FANS is not 100% government funded by the provincial or federal government. This needs to change. Go to fans.ca to learn how you can make a difference and help end violence against women. Podstarter.